Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Bill. And I'm Mikkel. And we are excited to have you on, although we are going to talk about a dark subject today. We're going to talk about death. And I want to preface to the listener, I know that there are, all of us humans do this human thing differently, and there are humans out there who uh, death is really frightening and scary and causes a lot of anxiety. If, if this isn't the episode for you, by all means, certainly turn it off and just tune in next week to the next one. But if you're comfortable delving into this subject, we are going to explore the ideas of death and dying. Uh, but I want to start off, just, we usually finish off our episodes, Mikkel, talking about some shadow work. And I want to start this episode just talking about something you're kind of dealing with at the moment, which is your girl, Kelsey. She uh, went on a backpacking trip uh, left this morning, correct? She, yeah, they, they were planning on leaving this morning, but they actually left this afternoon, so. Gotcha. What was the hang-up? Um, they were waiting for Paul to get home from work. Gotcha. So maybe run us through, you're really struggling with uh, her being gone on this backpacking trip, and, you know, here we are, we're day one. Uh, do you mind just kind of telling the audience, like, what's going on inside? Um, so this is the first time Kelsey and I have been away from each other for this long. So yeah, it's hard. I don't like it. Yeah. And I, I can tell you, so you and I are the same age. We're both 40, right? You're 40. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm 40. I turned 41 here in a couple of months. I can tell you like, I, just to give the audience maybe a little bit of background on you and me and to talk about that for just a moment, which is that you were in, again, a heterosexual marriage. You're a lesbian. You were doing what your religious system told you to do. So you really never had the experiences that, say, perhaps I had where my relationship was at least on the healthy ground of I'm attracted to women and married to one. My wife's attracted to men and she's married to one. And I feel for you because if I go back in time to when I'm 20 years old, 25 years old, 28 years old, my wife would come to me at times and say like, Hey, I, I think I want to go on this trip to go visit my family. Or I want to go on this trip to go, go see, you know, my sister and stay with her for a couple of days. And I, I was really struggling with that at the time. And it, it was really hard for me to let her go do those things. And I'm even guilty of having manipulated the situations in the past where I compelled her to stay and she'll still bring up once in a while, not having gone on this thing. And so I, I just want to, from a, from a human behavioral standpoint, applaud the fact that it worked out. She went, you're struggling with it, but, but in the long run, what helped me a ton, and I'd, I'd love to hear more from you on this, but what helped me a ton was to just let her go on these things and eventually to kind of learn like, oh, I'm okay if I let her do that. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of a struggle. It, it is a struggle. And I think the hardest part for me is it's not necessarily the absence. You know, I'm, I'm super glad that she's doing this because this has been something that she really wants to do. And, and it's something that makes her happy. It's there. 
they're going to a place where there won't be any cell phone service for like three and a half, three and a half days. And so it's really hard for me. Yeah, I, no, I think no, I get it. it. It'd be easier if I could talk to her. Right, right. And so she's backpacking outside of cell phone coverage and you're in, you know, you just, you guys just got married. And so yeah. there's, there's this, yeah, I, I totally get it. Trepidation and, and fear. You were telling me earlier on text, fear of the unknown. I totally get that. And so I just, I want to honor that. And so as the audience is listening, I, I hope that all of you are going back in your own heads and maybe looking at your lives now or looking at your lives in an earlier time and realizing that when we are separated from those we love, especially in the first times those separations happen, it's, it can be a huge thing to kind of deal with and reconcile. So uh, we're going to hang out tomorrow night, though, right? Like you and me and my wife and some other good friends of ours, the Reese's, are going to hang out and have a really good time. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm yeah, we're, about I am that. too. I am too. So today we want to talk about death. Let me start off, Mikkel, What is death a really scary subject for you? Like, does it give you anxiety? It does give me anxiety. In fact, when I was thinking about this last night, I was thinking, you know, this is one of the subjects that I I avoid. It, in my head, I know that that's not logical, but if I avoid talking about it or thinking about it, then maybe it won't happen. <laughs> and I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at I like, know. like I do some of that too. Like if I just don't think about, like for instance, I got into a little fender bender uh, the other day. It was my fault. And uh, the lady... Got my information. I got her. She drove off. And uh, I needed... The husband and the wife called me later that night and said, we need to talk to you. And I just didn't want to deal with it. Like, if I don't deal with it, maybe it just goes away. Right, right. But the reality is it isn't going away. When it comes to death, every one of us is going to, sooner or later, confront that moment, aren't we? Yeah. And that's, that's I guess, more fear of the unknown is just not knowing what's going to happen. You know, both of us are from a fundamentalist religion and they seem to have all of the answers. And now that there's no answers, that's more scary to me. Yeah. What do you, what do you think happens at death? What is your, what is your perspective today? Having deconstructed a religious system, now you're on the other side where you realize nobody has great answers to these, these existential questions. What, what do you think happens at death? I don't know. You know, Kelsey and I were talking about that today and that's, that's the frustrating part is there's there's so many different ideas out there and there's so many different perspectives that I really don't know what I think. Uh, what I hope for is that it's peaceful. I hope that there is something afterwards, whether that's, you know, a, a spiritual realm or as like energy. I don't know. I, I just hope that there is something afterwards um, because I do want to continue experiencing all that there is to experience. Yeah, I am um, not bothered so much by death. I've, I've kind of come face to face that my own personal view is the light just goes out. And, and I'm, not, I'm not, I don't have any trepidation over that. What I am pissed about is that the last three minutes of our lives, most of us, I don't, I don't think we, we, most of us go out peacefully. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, as a nurse, I've experienced that taking care of people who are dying or who are close to dying. And as comfortable as you try to make them, some people just don't go peacefully. They struggle. And so that that scares me, too. Yeah. In fact, when I uh, will sit and watch TV with my wife a lot of the times, and as I'm watching TV shows or I'm watching movies, but as I've as I sit and watch a television show, as I sit and watch a movie where somebody has a, 
an unfortunate, untimely end to their life, like I go into a state of deep despair for about five minutes where all I can think about is at some point I ha- like I'm having a lot of fun right now. Every day seems to be a blast. Every weekend is like can't be any better than than the last one. And it turns out to be better than the last one. But at some point, I have to face those last three minutes. And and we also have another friend who's in the medical field. Uh, this gentleman is a firefighter slash paramedic. And he, I said, be honest with me. I said, tell me, is is death as peaceful as most people make it out to be? And he goes, no. No. He goes, no. I've watched a lot of people die, and very few of them seem to to have the lights go out in a peaceful way. They struggle to to maintain life, and it is not. Those last three minutes are horrendous. Uh, that pisses me off. It pisses me off, and it scares me because you you want to go peacefully, you want to transition peacefully, you want you know. In, in my head, the story that I tell myself is that I want it to be happy, but my mind thinking it isn't going to make it so. If I were to ask you the word death, like just being dead, versus the the act of dying, that final that final moment of life giving way to something else. What are your thoughts as you compare those two words to each other? What are your thoughts on death and what are your thoughts on dying? Hmm. Are you more scared of one than the other? So I think that the the process, you know, that last three minutes is probably what scares me the most because it is so unknown. And like I said, as a nurse, you know, taking care of people as comfortable as we've tried to make people, there's still a struggle. And so it's the struggle that that causes me a lot of fear. And and again, just the unknown of what happens after the lights do go out because nobody really knows. And so, yeah, that it, not knowing is frustrating to me. But I think, you know, I, there's, there's lots of ways to be dead, not just the physical act of, you know, your life ceasing. We, we walk around dead in lots of ways. So that's interesting to think about too. Yeah, no, I, that is, is I wasn't planning on going there, but as you, as you mentioned that, as I think about the idea of not living, not, not finding value in your life. Like, like I know people, I just had a lady message me today who is uh, connected to you and me. If I named her, you would know who this is. And she texted me several thoughts on death because she knew that's what I was going to cover next. And she said, look, there have been times in my life I wish I was physically dead because I was emotionally dead. I was dead in terms of relationships that I valued. And I was essentially among the walking dead because, because life wasn't worth living even though I was alive. Yeah, totally. There's been times I felt like that myself. Um, have, you, have you ever lost a loved one close to you? Or is, or is that something that at 40 that you haven't quite experienced yet? No. So the first death that I remember was when I was about, um, well, two that kind of stand out as a kid. Um, we were in a car accident when I was seven and lost a little sister that my parents had adopted. We'd only had her for a year, but still that was, that was my first experience with, wow. with death. I, wow. I, I, I yeah. Do you mind? I, I want to be sensitive. Like we can skip subjects if they're too, yeah, too hard, good. but, but your thoughts like losing somebody, how old were you at the time? I was seven. And how old was she? She was a year old. Ooh. And my Ooh. my parents adopted her. They'd they'd only had her 
if I can remember right, uh, they'd had her about a year, and she came from a drug drug addicted mother, and so she had a lot of health problems. And we were in a car accident, and I don't remember a lot of the car accident, just bits and pieces. And in the car accident, I broke my leg and my arm and um, had to have surgery on my leg. So I was in the hospital for about a week. And um, during that time, they held my sister's funeral, so I missed the funeral. And as a kid, I remember that being really hard because I didn't, I didn't have an understanding of death, really, and no one really talked to me about it. Um, so not being able to say goodbye was hard. Um, and then I lost my grandmother when I was eight. And then just periodically throughout my life, I've had to, f- to deal with people dying. Mm. I've, I've lost um, all four of my grandparents. And my grandfather on my dad's side, he had lung cancer, did the chemo, did the radiation. It seemed to have gone away and then showed back up in his brain like a, a year or two later. And I remember that, I mean, I was there at like 4 a.m. when he passed. My, my grandfather had eight children, my dad being one of them. And you can imagine all the cousins and as many of us as could be at the home were at the home. And so I remember he was laying on a bed in the living room. And my dad and all of his siblings were surrounded around the bed as this man's breath got really slow. Wow, I didn't... Um, it's hard. His breath got really slow. And uh, us cousins, us cousins, you know, my, my dad and his siblings, their children, we were all kind of in the background. I remember standing in the doorway between the kitchen and the living room and watching his breath get slower and slower. And finally it stopped. Uh, and my dad, who is just always been my hero, and I watched him almost go into a comatose state where he, the rest of the siblings eventually made their peace with it and walked away from the bed. And my dad just stood there for like 25 minutes, just seemingly paralyzed with, with not knowing what to do next. And my dad walks, uh, eventually walks outside because I'm in tears. I walked out. I couldn't, I couldn't see him like that anymore. And so he, he eventually walks out into the backyard and he joins me and he looks at me and he goes, son, you'll understand this, but there's, there's no love like a father loves his son. And I just bawled. Me and my dad just held each other bawling. And um, my, my grandfather wasn't a nice parent to his kids. He beat his children. He, he did things he shouldn't have done. He made bad choices. And yet here it was at the end of my life and my dad had nothing but love and respect for his father who he had just lost moments ago. And it allowed, there was, there was in this sadness, there was a way in which I was also connecting with my dad, recognizing that he just lost his father and I saw what his father meant to him. And I sat in the space of thinking about what my father meant to me. Um, it's, it's interesting how, how something so traumatic such as death can sometimes be such a connecting experience. Um, I was telling Kelsey, you know, as a nurse taking care of people who are dying, in some ways it it feels like such an honor to me to be able to help people transition and um, make sure they're not alone, make sure they're comfortable to help try and make things as, as easy as possible. Um, so to, to be with people in their last few moments of their life... Um, is, is honoring for me. And like I said, it can be, it can be super connecting for families and, and loved ones. Do, do you have any thoughts on 
how we as humans can do a better job being, I guess, more comfortable. I don't think we're ever going to be comfortable. I think we all, to some degree, anybody who says like, I'm not afraid of death. Like, I'm like, yeah, okay, they're bullshitting. Uh, I don't, right. I'm, I don't believe you. But, and, and again, maybe people are not afraid of death. I'm afraid of death. Uh, I'm afraid of dying. Any thoughts on, from you on how we humans can get more comfortable with death? I think we have to talk about it more. We have to talk about it more with each other and with our kids, um, especially because if if we if we talk about it and we view it as a just a part of life, because it is, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's going to happen to all of us. Then I think that it can help make things less scary, um, and and make things more comfortable. And I don't know. I think that you have to be as prepared as you can. Um, you know, one of the things that we do as nurses is we, we talk about living will and durable power of attorney and who's going to take care of you and who's going to make medical decisions for you if you can't. And so if you haven't done those things, it, it'd be a good time. Talk to your family about what you want after you die and talk about, you know, who's going to handle the finances or who's going to handle your will and, and all of the, all of those things, because you don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah, I'll tell you another thought I had as you were saying that, which is that we humans have created rituals. We've created not not only myths, which we've talked about before, but we've created rituals around those myths. And those rituals, they're based in various belief systems. Like, for instance, to, since we're talking about death, take a funeral. A Christian funeral is almost assuredly, and I'm not an expert in this field, so I don't know, but is almost assuredly different than a Buddhist funeral or a Hindu funeral or an Islamic funeral. And, and yet, as a person who has deconstructed not only my religious system, but Christianity as a whole, I'm still interested in and a willing participant in the Christian rituals around death or around marriage. So meaning you want like a traditional funeral or, or what do you mean by that? Meaning that when I attend a funeral... I, like I haven't put much thought into like what I want my own funeral to look like, but when I've gone to funerals, I am a willing participant in them. I'm happy. I, I'm not in the. I'm not sitting in the funeral going like this. Christian stuff is nonsense. Instead, I recognize that we humans created these rituals as a way to cope with this thing that's right. unknown and scary. It's the. It's the. It's the. Um, mechanism we've created to bring us all together so that we can try as best as possible to deal with the passing of this loved one collectively and to lean on each other and to love each other through it and to be supportive. The rituals give us the the framework at which we learn to deal with death and, and do the best we can to make peace with it. Yeah. I'm surprised that you haven't thought about your own funeral though, Bill. Yeah, I haven't. I don't. I don't know what I want that to look like. In in my in my best guess at what I, I would want to sit down and kind of spell that out as, I would just want my friends and my loved ones to to have fun. I would want them to take a night and celebrate my life by laughing and man, wow, and enjoying like the conversation around how I lived. Like, let's forget the fact that I did. It's gone. It's done. It's over. But celebrate the way I lived. Celebrate the things I said that were funny celebrate the things I did to care for you and others, like celebrate the good and, and have fun and laugh 
because how we live seems to be like, like the way I don't think about death is I have fun and enjoy my life. But I know as I get older, I've got a mother who is sick and, and it is forcing me to think about her life and the end of her life. And it's forcing me to think about like how we think time stands still. And we think that if we just pretend it goes away and it never shows up. And the reality is every day we're one day closer. And at some point we're like a gallon of milk. There's an expiration date and we may not see the ink on the outside of the carton, but it's coming. And I think the best way we stem it off is by living the best we can. And it's not easy for everyone. Some people have really severe trauma. Some people are dealing with really big, uh, abuses and things in their life that make day-to-day living extremely difficult. I don't want to diminish them, but man, living, like having fun and smiling and laughing with your friends and uh, do the best you can to, to live presently and to enjoy life as much as possible. Not that it's easy. Um, I'm going to let you talk for a minute because I'm going to go wipe the snot off my face. <laughs> So when I was in nursing school, one of the things that we had to do was we had to watch a series of videos by a researcher, a death researcher um, named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she um, studied loss, grief, and dying. And um, she's got several really, really good quotes. And one of them that I found today says, it's only when we truly know and understand that we have a limited time on earth and that we have no way of knowing when our time is up that we will begin to live each day to the fullest as if it were the only one we had. And, you know, I, I really liked what you said about just living life um, because we don't know how much time we have. And sometimes that's hard for me to do because I get worried about the day-to-day stuff and I get worried about bills and kids and work and, and all of the other things. Um, but it just reminds me of, you know, previous podcasts where, we focus on connection and being authentic and looking for ways to to start awakening because this is all we have. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about the the five uh, five stages? stages of grief, right? Of of loss, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And there are certain behaviors that seem. Uh, strange to me. And, I, and I'm, again, I'm going to point to my mom and I, I do this with the utmost respect. And I, 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 I feel like so often we're so hesitant to talk about death or it, the folks in our life who are alive presently, but are dealing with serious health issues and where that is at some point here on the horizon. And I'll tell you from my mom's perspective, she's, she's living in this space where she's it feels like she's somewhat still kind of stuck in denial. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want anybody to know what her health issues are. She, she's just very private about it. And, and I think like, how would I do that? How would I do this thing called, called being sick or dying? And in my mind, I would want people to know, I would want closure with everyone. I would want everybody to make peace. I would want to be able to apologize for anything I did wrong. And I would want others to be able to have the chance to apologize if they felt like they wronged me and to, to, make space for us to all say like, look, we've all screwed this thing up called, called being a human. Let's, let's do the best we can to make amends and, and to let each other know we love each other. And, and yet on some level, every one of us does this thing differently. What has been in your, I mean, as you've watched from the medical field, what has been your experience watching people go through this process and the differences in which people handle it? 
it, it, it is interesting because everybody handles it so differently. It's such a unique and individual experience. And so it's hard to kind of just like pinpoint what helps the most or what, what makes things the easiest. And so I, I don't know, Bill, I wish this is another one of those things that I wish I had a magic wand and could make the answers just appear and, and make things work, but it's not, it's just, there's no, there's no easy way to handle it. So did you see, and maybe speak to um, whether people get resentful or whether people seem to like, okay, it's coming, so let's let's put on my best face and let people see that I'm. I don't know. I guess I'm. I guess I'm just yeah, reaching. So I, I've had a lot of experiences either with taking care of patients or with family members, and so, um, you know, I I had. Um, someone in my family who was pregnant with twins and went into labor early. Uh, Babies were, I think, 21 or 22 weeks. So super, super early. And I went to visit her at the hospital. Babies were on life support. And um, they just, babies had a ton of health problems, bleeding brains, um, holes in their hearts, not able to eat, immature lungs, just lots and lots of problems. And seeing her and her husband battle back and forth between, you know, what are the chances that we we help these babies continue to live? And what are the chances that they live normal, healthy lives? And what are the chances that they are vegetables? And and we have to take care of them for the rest of their life. And is that the kind of life we want them to have? Or is that the kind of life we want for the rest of our family? And seeing them make the decision to, to take take the babies off life support and holding them while they passed. I can't, I can't imagine. That was really difficult. Yeah. Being there in the room with them again, felt like such an honor, but such a difficult decision. And then I've seen patients who know they have a terminal illness and they know that they're going to die and they know that death is coming who are peaceful and they look forward to it because in their minds, it's going to be a release of the pain and and the suffering that they've been through. And again, I I don't know what makes one person accept the reality of, of death more easily than another. I think it's such a personal choice and such a personal decision. Um, And I think it, it plays heavily on what you believe and what you think is going to happen after death. Um, again, when I was in my religious system, I, I didn't, didn't really think a whole lot about death, but I didn't, I wasn't afraid because they had the answers. And now on the other side of things, not knowing what's going to happen, it's a little more scary for me. As I think about the, the five stages of grief, what I realize is that we can get stuck at a stage. We can get stuck at denial. We can get stuck at anger, but we can't skip these stages no matter how almost awakened we are. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's also something that is so personal. Everybody's timeline is going to be different and, and we can't, we can't presume to know where people are at and we can't try and push them along because we think they should be over it. Nor do I think we'll know how we'll handle this until we're in that space. Right. Like, I, like I don't know, and as I've dealt with various things in my life, I've gone through these stages very differently with different tragedies. 
and and I didn't know how I would handle it until it happened. So, Bill, what are your thoughts on something like assisted suicide? Uh, if you would have asked me a decade ago, I would have been clearly against it. That there is a a a God being out there that we don't have a right to disrupt His timing on things. But now that I've deconstructed all that, and now here I am sitting here as a agnostic or maybe even an atheist, and realizing, at least for me, that death is just the end, and and recognizing that life is, while precious, and, and maybe I need to say this too, and it goes back to the quote I shared, and again, I'm gonna, it's going to get old probably quick, but that I am the universe experiencing this particular consciousness for a little while, this, this being a human. Um, it's miraculous that I'm here. We talked about this last week. It's miraculous. Anything in the timeline changes. My parents have sex five minutes later. It's not me. So it's miraculous, and I'm living this life. And at the point where this life, because of illness or debilitation of some sort, when it becomes not worth living, and that not worth living isn't just a state of depression for a time and a season, but is going to remain this way or get worse until the day I exit this life, then I'm, then I'm completely for people having control. Like, like the one thing I, I hate the most is when someone tells my story or tries to control my narrative. And I think if we give people the ability, and again, I think there needs to be some guidelines for that, debilitating disease, debilitating physical ailment of some sort that's going to continue to get worse and, and wherein someone is not enjoying life, nor are they going to enjoy life for the rest of that time. I think we need to let people have control of their narrative and decide for themselves when is when. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, the same. You know, I would have I would have argued, you know, 10 years ago or even five years ago, but in seeing things differently now, um, I think people should have that choice. They should be able to decide what works best for them and for their family. And um, I, I agree. My man, I, I, I remember watching a documentary about a lady who had a a serious illness and it was one of these illnesses that was going to continually get worse, but she was okay in the present moment. And she lived in a country where you did have control over your own life in that way. And so she was able to uh, procure a pill to have a pill that whenever she took it, she would die. And she just kept it in her purse. Wow. And yeah. And so essentially when she decided like, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm to the point where tomorrow I may not be able to have enough control of my body to take this pill and things are continually getting worse and they are bad today. She could pull that pill out of her pocket and take it in any moment. Um, I, I think to some degree, I think people need to have that kind of power over their lives. Um, I think we need to let people decide how they exit this mortality. Yeah, I agree. Your thoughts too. Do you have any, again, we're not experts. We're by no means is this subject something we're like, hey, we can offer good yeah, advice. No. <laughs> not at all. Um, I just think it helps to talk about it. But your thoughts, are, are there any suggestions from you on ways that we can work through grief, whether you're the person dying or whether you're the, the person who's trying to support a loved one who's dying? That's a really good question. Um, and I wish I had some good insight. Um, but I don't. I, I think that Again, the more prepared you are in, in, you know, prior to bad things happening, 
the better it's going to be and the easier it's going to be for family members or loved ones to make certain decisions um, about what happens after you die. But as far as, as far as grieving and I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm in the same place you are where I don't have a ton of suggestions, but one thing I did do was just go and pull up a couple of websites that uh, had good suggestions for us. Let me, let me read a few of these out. And if any of these stick out as, as I go through them, stop me. Um, well, and, and I did mention Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who studied lost grief and dying. She's a, if you don't know her stuff, maybe look that up too. Cool. We'll, uh, we'll make sure we put some links to her work in the show notes so that people can, can check that out. As I came across, there were two websites in particular, and, I, and I've put those in the show notes. People can go read those, but here were their suggestions. This is a combined list. And this is mainly for people who are dealing with the immediate loss of somebody they love, somebody they care about, and they are going uh, through the grieving process. Uh, Seek out caring people. Express your feelings. Take care of your health. uh, Accept that life is for the living. Postpone major life changes. It says be patient. Seek outside help when necessary. Like, we we kind of live in a world where we're like, okay, this is how life happens. Deal with it. And the reality is I think every one of us, like, like it should be provided for every human, uh, the ability to go see a therapist as needed. Yeah. Uh, I, right. So I think on some level, if you have some struggle emotionally with this, don't hesitate to, to seek outside help. It says here, join in rituals. So there's that idea of participating in this communal, Celebration of life and communal mourning of what is now gone. Uh, let your emotions be expressed and released. Talk about it when you can. Like you can't talk about it all the time. There's times where right. I can talk about tragedy. And there's times where I just need to be left alone and be allowed to kind of just mourn inside my own sacred spaces. Yeah. Um, talk about it when you can. So preserve memories. Like I, I go back in time and they used to make death masks. And they used to lay the body out in the home for a week or two on to, to allow people to have some closure. Today, we live in the modern age of being able to have photographs. and um, But there's other things we can do. We could take time to interview, you know, record our own conversation about our life, things we want to pass on to our loved ones, as well as if you know someone who's dying, you could sit down with them and collect their memories of their life. So there's that kind of thing. There's also joining a support group. So there's support groups for people that have cancer. There's support groups for loved ones of people who have cancer, for instance. Find a place to be able to feel safe and to talk. Uh, Any thoughts from you on any of those or anything else that came to mind? Yeah, the other thing that came to mind is sometimes we don't know what to say to someone who's grieving or to someone who's lost a loved one. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that. You can can say, like, "I, I don't know what to say right now but I'm sorry. And I love you. Um, I'm just thinking of, you know, my, my 10 year old, um, gosh, sometimes things are hard. My 10 year old had a kid in her class, um, who was diagnosed with brain cancer last year and he recently passed away. And Kelsey and I went to his, his viewing and that was one of the things that his mom said. She said, you know, people just don't know what to say. Um, they don't know what to do, but it can be simple things like just sending a text as simple as I'm thinking of you today, or I know today's a hard day, sending you my love, or taking people out to lunch, you know, just 
by not saying anything, people feel like you don't care or that you are forgetting them. Um, so if you don't know what to say, it's okay. Don't not say anything. You're a, you're a cool cat because you're hitting on, I, I also checked out kind of if you're dealing with someone who's, who's, uh, lost a loved one and, and how you respond to that. It's some of these things you're saying it's share the sorrow. Don't offer false comfort. We sometimes think like what helps people feel better is to tell them that their loved one was needed more on the other side. Yeah, that's bullshit. Right. Or it was for the best or you'll get over it in time. Those kinds of answers are not helpful. They're not. And, and I think this is part of what comes out. If we start having conversations around death and dying, we can collectively as humans learn from each other that the things we've done, the ways we've done it aren't really helpful. They don't work. Uh, I've, I've had numerous people in their tragedy of losing a loved one say like someone came up to me and said that heavenly, you know, heavenly father needed them more on the other side. And, and they point blank said like, it wasn't helpful. It wasn't, um, it wasn't comforting to hear that. And so I think we've got to come to grips with what doesn't work and be willing to do something different. And I think you're pointing to it, which is share the sorrow, offer practical help, says babysitting, cooking, running errands are all ways to help someone who's in the midst of grieving. says to be patient, like it takes time to overcome some sort of loss. And, and these losses are not just the physical death of people, but when, when people have to reformulate what their life means in any way, and it can be uh, an issue in a marriage, it can be having children move out of the house and now you've got an empty nest, uh, it can be a lot of different things. Give people time to process and to overcome those kinds of, of loss or reformulations of what their life means. And then it also says the same thing again, encourage professional help when necessary. Um, I want to talk for a moment. We've got a group of, again, 14, 15, 16, 17, whatever it is, we've got our group of friends. And these are people like I love deeply. I love you. I love my other friends. And we kind of recognize, like, we're not all going to exit this life at the same time. We're There's, not? Right, no. Well, unless we all want to, like, jump off a building or something. I thought that's what, like, that's that was my understanding, that we were okay. all, like, suicide packed all at the same time, so then I don't have to ever be sad without you. So do, how do we do it? Do we wait for the first person to go, and then the rest of us all do it together? Yes. Because, you know, I don't want to do it too early. There might be, there might be another <laughs> couple of decades of fun. But there is this paradox of pros and cons to going early and to, and to living a long, long life. Um, I just want to read something here. I thought this was touching. I never really kind of, I mean, I've thought of it, but not really in this way. Uh, it, is, it says here, it is a bit of a paradox that the more successful you are at healthy aging and achieving longevity, the more death will be a part of your life experiences. As each of us grows older, we are faced with more and more friends and family who will pass as a result of an accident, an illness, or simply old age. The older we get, the more people we know that will have chronic and terminal diseases. One of the most common experiences for those caught unprepared for this reality is depression, which is not surprisingly common in old age. Figuring out how you are going to cope with death is both proactive anti-aging skill and mental health effort that we should all work towards. Your thought on living the shortest life among all the people you love versus living the longest life, um, what do you think about all that? Well, I think it depends on the, the 
way that you die. You know, if you die in a tragic accident when you're young, you don't really have much control over that. But dying, dying when you're older, I don't know, they both seem really shitty to see all of your friends and your family die and to be the last one left. Like, that would suck. Yeah, can you imagine being 98 years old Well, and I, everybody you care about is gone? I, I always envisioned living older, like into my 90s. You know, my, my grandparents on my dad's side, my great-grandpa lived until he was 95. My grandma right now is in her late 80s. But if, if I have nobody left, no, I don't want that. I've already told Kelsey, we've talked a lot about this the last couple of days, knowing a little bit beforehand what you were going to talk about today. And like just experiencing her absence today, I, I don't, I don't want to be without her. And so if she goes, I will likely die of a broken heart. Yeah, I know. I get it. Or I may opt for assisted suicide. I'm not assisting you. I can take care of myself. I'm a nurse. Yeah, that that's scary. And and if you would have said something like that a, even a year ago, but really five or ten years ago, I would have, I would have jumped at you in a negative way. Like I would have been like, I would have pushed back and been like, "Are you serious?" And and now, as I'm 40 years old and I'm somewhere, hopefully, hopefully somewhere in the middle of that space of my timeline. I I no longer want to have any kind of judgment towards how people deal with death and people dying around them. I, I worry a lot about suicide. I worry a lot about kids. I've got a daughter who's had suicidal ideology at times. And um, I think sometimes a kid looks at their life and they're bullied in school or emotionally things are really hard when they're a teenager. And, and I feel awful about suicide at that age because... They have a whole life ahead of them, and, and I think that they don't recognize to some degree that life changes a bunch once you get out of, out, of, out of school and you graduate and you move on to college or a career or get married and have kids. Like that, Those stages of life look very different from the younger stages of life. So I, I don't want to say like, hey, I'm encouraging people to take their lives. No, no, no. No. But, but on, the, on the back end of life... Like, I no longer can have judgment towards what you just said. I totally can understand why. Like, I don't want to be the last one. I don't want to look around and my, my kids are gone and my wife is gone and I'm in a nursing home and I don't have anyone come to visit me. And that just doesn't make a lot of sense either. No. It'll be me and you there, Bill. Well, I hope. I'm, I'm a lot unhealthier, a lot more unhealthy than you are. Um, I know, but can you I imagine the fun you, we would have? Yeah, it would, but I could see you living to be ninety. I don't, I don't see me living to be ninety, kid. <laughs> um, in fact, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna go home and eat tonight. But it could be a couple of hamburgers and a hot dog. Who knows? You know, I'm just, I'm just, en I'm enjoying quality over quantity. Like I watch people who jog and try to take really good care of themselves. We got a friend. We got a friend. They still who die. Just who just ran three hundred and like seventeen miles in eight days. He, he just, again, I know he enjoyed that and he's going to argue with me, but he just wasted eight days of his life. <laughs> Running. He could have been at a party with the rest of us having a cold drink and uh, enjoying a few extra laughs, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so these people who exercise all the time, they go to the gym for two hours a day. Like, maybe I live five years less than you. Maybe I live 10 years less than you, but I think you just spent 10 years at the gym. Probably. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's a, if that's a win or not. 
Oh. Your thoughts on your thoughts on exercise? We should all exercise. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, maybe. I'm probably not going to start though. Bill. Um, yeah, just just not my style. We've had this uh, conversation before. We have, but I got bad knees and stuff. Like I'm, it just would excuses, just, excuses. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. I'm making I have excuses. A, I, Plus, have, I like eating. I have a, a quote about excuses. Do you want to hear it? Uh, sure. <laughs> it's something my dad used to say all the time. Excuses are like buttholes. We all got them, and they all stink. Yeah, we we shouldn't. Well, I'm going to still make excuses. I'm not going to laugh at all. <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not going to side with you. I'm disagreeing. So going back to what you, one of the original questions that you asked me, how do you feel about death and dying? Is there a difference between those two words for you and, and those last three minutes? So I'm, I am scared as hell. No pun intended. I'm scared what? to death of, of dying. What scares like those, you? Um, the panic, the struggle to stay alive knowing that it's ending, the the chance that my body goes and my brain is still firing away, trying to make sense of it. Um, the, the pain of a heart attack or, or a stroke or an aneurysm, which is why you should exercise and trying to like come to grips with that or having cancer in the final stages and everything just hurts. Um, I, no, the act of dying is deeply problematic. Now I will say this, the, the actual being dead, um, doesn't scare me, but there's a little bit of being pissed there too, because we humans are conscious. We do have memories and right. So what happens to those? Oh, the, what do I you think, think they go? I think they vanish. I think they're gone. And, and, and then a generation or two removed from us, nobody even remembers us, right? Like how much do you really know about your great grandparents? Very little. So it's like the movie Coco. Like the movie Coco. Yeah. You've seen, you've seen that movie? The cartoon, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. You, you have to tell the audience, though, because whether I've seen it or you've seen it, there's four people out there who haven't. Well, then I guess they'll have to watch it if they want to know what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, so we'll just skip Coco. <laughs> um, no, yeah, in the, in, the, <laughs> <laughs> in the movie Coco, the, if, you were, if your picture is not put up on... Dia de los Muertos, you're you're forgotten, and your soul basically vanishes, and so. So you have to remember these people, mm-hmm. and and yet, let's be honest. Again, by the time you get to your great grandchildren, you're gone for all. They don't. They don't like. Yeah, they might know your name, and they might have a story or two, but you're gone. You're forgotten, and so we're gonna have to make peace with our consciousness ending, perhaps. Make peace with those behind us not being as able to remember or as affected by us as we think. And on some level, like we get to make the world the best place we can, but then we're gone. And a few generations later, nobody even knows. Like it's even famous people, even famous people to some degree, like over time, they just get, they just become forgotten. Yeah. Bill, there's, you know, there's some people who've had near-death experiences or who, who say they've died and come back and have had a peaceful or positive experience. How do you explain that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and I've, I've, from a second hand, experienced one of these where my grandfather, in his final two weeks of having cancer, he was an atheist. He absolutely, no ifs, ands, or buts, did not believe in God. He gets into the final two weeks of his life. He's in his room one night, 
and he's you know 80 years old 76 77 years old i think and his younger brother died in a car accident when his younger brother was 19 years old and the this he had a experience where he perceived his 19 year old brother this this brother visits him still in the uh in the form of a 19 year old self and says he's there to help him cross to the other side my grandfather then brings his wife in uh, and tells my grandmother, says, uh, you can go ahead and have a religious funeral now. I just saw my younger brother, Kenny. And um, my grandfather became a believer in God in the last two weeks of his life. Now you're asking me what I think. What I think is that there is a lot of potential inside the brain to have these events happen to the point now where we've done enough science in the last decade or so, where we can do certain things with electricity and current to the brain to have people perceive certain feelings, such as being outside their body, such as being above their body, and even perceiving their body as away from their own consciousness. Um, I was looking, uh, reading a, excuse me, I was listening to some audio today from uh, Neil uh, DeGrasse Tyson. I'm, I'm going to say his name wrong. And in the video, he talks about, yeah, people see a tunnel of light, but that makes sense when they're on a hospital bed and there's lights right above their head. And, and I, I think people within various religious systems have the religious experiences that their systems tell them to have, whereas people from Islam see Allah or Muhammad and Christians see Jesus. Uh, Buddhists see something different and Hindus see something different. I think it's our brain at the very end, making attempts to make sense of what's happening and to preserve itself. Um, we also know that there's the pineal gland in the brain. It's called the, the spirit or the God molecule that it gives off DMT. And we know from certain studies that it's believed that infants, as well as people in the final days and weeks of their lives, that gland is firing and that gland produces a chemical DMT, which is highly hallucinogenic. Uh, I, I think there are rational explanations for near-death experiences, but I'm also still willing to admit I don't have the certainty, and I'm open, although I doubt highly, that there's any reality to those experiences. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I just in my experience in, in nursing have seen people similar to what your grandpa experienced who have seen loved ones, you know, coming back for them or trying to assist them in crossing over. And I think that if that brings, if that is what brings you peace, then by all means do what makes you happy and what brings you peace. Um, but for me, it's, I'm in the same boat. It's uncertain, it's unknown. And so I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, what are your thoughts on like, you know, you, you've mentioned that you think that our consciousness ceases, but, um, you know, I've read some things that say energy can't be destroyed or created. So what do you think happens to, like, the energy that's in our bodies right now? There, there, I had heard, and I don't know if this is an urban legend or if there's truth to this, but I had heard when the body dies, there's a certain measurable amount of weight that exits the body, even though the entire body's still right there. And, and I don't know if there's truth to that, but it certainly causes me pause and, hel and helps me to kind of think about and try to process like what happens. I'll say this, if, I, if whatever's on the other side, anywhere from a dirt nap to energy goes on and assimilates with other energies, 
whether it's reincarnation, whether regardless of any of those options, if I don't get to take my memories, my consciousness, my memories and awareness of what experiences I've had in this life with me, then I don't know that I really care. Like in other words, if I get reincarnated and I'm reincarnated as another human or a cow or whatever, it doesn't make any sense to me that that's going to bring me any comfort if I'm now a cow with any, without any memory of what I was before. It, it, like, like let's just say I'm, I'm reincarnated right now. I, I was a Civil War soldier in my past life. There's no comfort. It, it just doesn't because give you me have, good. you have no recollection of your previous life. And so what purpose what does use it serve? Is it? What's, yeah. The, yeah, what's the purpose? I, I've had a ton of fun. My life has been good. My childhood was good. My adulthood's been good. I've had so much fun. I enjoy learning. If I don't get to take those things with me, if I don't get to take a memory of my mom, if I don't get to take a memory of my dad, if I don't get to take the memories of my kids... If I don't get to take the memories of my grandparents and my friends, like what's the point? It doesn't really serve any purpose for me. So I'm only I'm only willing to call it positive if I get to take my experience with me, at least to the degree of when I do get to the other side, I get to share the same space with those that I spent time investing my love and my care for, and they invested their love and care for me in this life. So if there's no afterlife, then what's the purpose of even being on the earth and existing right now? Yeah, so I've had to reevaluate that. Um, and I, and I want to hear your answer on this. Let me, ha- let me have you give your answer first, because otherwise I'm just going to drone on for a bit. <laughs> so tell me your answer first. What is the purpose of this life if there is no afterlife? Yeah, I, that's something that I'm still trying to figure out, trying to understand. Um, but I think that some of the things that you've pointed to today, just just connecting with people and having a good time as best of a time as we can while we do have this limited space. Um, I think that for me, that's, that's what I, my goal is to, you know, connect with my kids and pass something on, um, something that's meaningful, whether that's knowledge or, or simply just letting them know how much they're loved. Um, and, and doing what I can to try and make the world a better place for those who will still be here after I go. For me, I think that that's what my purpose is. And however I can best fulfill that, that's what I'm going to try and do. Yeah, once I, again, grasp this idea that we're on a flying rock and this flying rock's been flying for 10 billion years and it comes from, again, if we say our best guess is the Big Bang Theory and so the universe is put into motion and now there's this giant rock and there's other giant rocks flying through the sky, but we're on this giant rock flying through the sky and out of algae comes life and, and all of a sudden, you know, 10 billion years later, now there's humans walking around on a planet with consciousness. Like there's a recognition that on some level, the material that makes us, makes, uh, make, make up, makes up us, that material is eternal. And that, and that eternal perspective of like, hey, there was, there was a universe before we were born and there's going to be a universe long after we're gone. What I find to be the best purpose is to try and make this planet or this universe a better place. Like let my life have a net positive uh, impact on this universe or at least this planet. And our friends were talking about like, what's the purpose of life the other day? Here's what I wrote. I said, have fun. And don't be a dick yeah. while helping us collectively as humans improve and learn and take better care of this flying rock we live on, as well as the other species that coexist here with us. And then I said, that's all I've got. 
That's all I've got is don't be a dick. Make the planet a better place. Have fun. Find people that you like and love them to death. Love them till death. Um, that's it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to really quickly, there's two quotes that I've got here, and then I'll just ask you what kind of closing remarks you've got, and we'll call this, uh, this episode, uh, we'll call it quits on this one. Anne Druin, she wrote this. She said, when my husband died, because he was so famous and known for not being a believer, many people would come up to me, it still sometimes happens, and ask me if Carl changed at the end. And by the way, you might be hearing rain in the background. Um, it is pouring rain here in southern Utah on July 30th. Uh, here we are at 7.15 at night because I've got a conference to go to this weekend. Um, she says, uh, and ask me if Carl changed at the end and converted to a belief in the afterlife. They also frequently ask me if I think I will see him again. Carl faced his death with unflagging courage and never sought refuge in illusions. The tragedy was that we knew we would never see each other again. I don't ever expect to be reunited with Carl. But the great thing is that when we were together for nearly 20 years, we lived with a vivid appreciation of how brief and precious life is. We never trivialized the meaning of death by pretending it was anything other than a final parting. Every single moment that we were alive and we were together was miraculous. Not miraculous in the sense of inexplicable or supernatural. We knew we were beneficiaries of chance. That pure chance would be so generous and so kind that we could find each other as Carl wrote so beautifully in Cosmos. You know, in the vastness of space and the immensity of time that we could be together for 20 years. That is something which sustains me and is much more meaningful. The way he treated me and the way I treated him, the way we took care of each other and our family while he lived, this, he, she says, that is so much more important than the idea I will see him someday. I don't think I'll ever see Carl again, but I saw him. We saw each other. We found each other in the cosmos, and that was wonderful. Andrewin. Um, and then one more by Carl Sagan. I would love to believe that when we die, I will live again. That some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I want to believe that, and despite the ancient and worldwide cultural traditions that assert an afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking. I want to grow really old with my wife, Annie, whom I dearly love, and I want to see my younger children grow up and play a role in their character and intellectual development. I want to meet still unconceived grandchildren. There are scientific problems whose outcomes I long to witness, such as the exploration, exploration of many of the worlds in our solar system and the search for life elsewhere. I want to learn how major trends in human history, both hopeful and worrisome, work themselves out. The dangers and promises of our technology, uh, technology, the emancipation of women, the growing political, economic, and technological ascendancy of China, interstellar flight, if there were life after death, I might, no matter when I die, satisfy most of these deep curiosities and longings. But if death is nothing more than an endless dreamless sleep, that is a forlorn hope. Maybe this perspective has given me a little extra motivation to stay alive. The world is so exquisite, with so much love and moral depth, that there is no reason to deceive ourselves with pretty stories for which there's little good evidence." Far better, it seems to me, in our vulnerability is to look death in the eye 
and to be grateful every day for the brief but magnificent opportunity that life provides. Again, that's Carl Sagan. Uh, any concluding thoughts from you, Mikkel? It's, you know, in listening to your first quote, um, I think that there's parts that it, of it that are hard for me to hear because, um, you know, in saying goodbye to Kelsey today, I, it's, it's silly because she's going to be back. But to say goodbye to someone and have it be final seems not fair. It seems it's not, it's not fair. And I don't know how people come to grips with the finality in such a way that it's they can look back on the life that they had and celebrate it. I mean, there sure there's there's lots of really good moments, but that doesn't overpower or overshadow the finality of never being able to see someone again. So it's hard for me to hear that, and yet I know that we do. We have to celebrate each moment that we have with the people that we love because it is so brief and it can be taken away in a moment. Um, bad things happen to good people. So how do we, how do we take those moments and live them to the best of our ability? So in conclusion, my answer to that would be like that first quote, I used to a decade ago, look at my life and the people around me as miraculous, but in a certain kind of miraculous there's a heavenly being and we were his children and he sent us down to this planet to get bodies. And our job is to, to not only be kind to people, but to form relationships and to make sure those relationships are worthy of, of remaining intact after this life. And, and now I look at life and it's just as miraculous, but it's a different kind of miraculous. Like the, cha- like, like the fact that I'm here enjoying whatever time I've got it, it, it's the, like you say, it's, it's not fair. And yet it's the fairest thing that's ever happened. Like it's, it's no longer the miracle I thought it was. And yet it's a complete miracle for a whole nother reason. Um, I'm just grateful for the time that I have to enjoy a walk in nature or to uh, spend an evening bowling with my kids or to hold my wife at night. Like I didn't deserve that either. It's beautiful. Um, I think, I think our responsibility is to be present and take advantage of every moment we have because life is precious. Uh, And these relationships with people we care about are precious. So, Bill, why don't we just talk about this for just a quick second? Where do people go to get help if they're struggling with the loss of a loved one or if they're feeling suicidal themselves? So with suicide, I would say immediately call, you know, a suicide hotline or reach out to somebody you love and have you know, you're, again, your intuition says they care enough about you that they're going to step in and try to help you um, slow that thinking down. But again, there are hotlines out there. If, if it's something that's just like, hey, I'm depressed, I'm experiencing grief, uh, what I would do is try to find a group out there that meets together that is dealing with the same kind of issue that you're dealing with so that you have a safe space to talk in. Uh, man, I, I don't have the fix for that, Mikkel. This is This is above my pay grade and outside my my experience. Um, but I would say reach out to somebody you know and trust or reach out to experts or people who are trained 
to handle those kinds of situations. I think that's smart and good advice. Death is scary. And death is, you know, again, none of us, if it, this life is so hard that none of us get out alive. Like it's an impending event for all of us. Uh, as we close out, I don't know if you have any other thoughts. I was just going to share what our closing song was going to be and, and send people off with a chance to kind of process this in their own sacred spaces. Yeah, sounds good. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.